good afternoon and hello everyone and welcome to another podcast of Indigenous Roots and Hoots. I'm your host Gordon Spence and today my guest is Adam North Pagan. Adam is from the Picani First Nation in southern Alberta and currently resides in Edmonton. Adam's career has spanned over years of advocating for the needs of Indigenous programs and services in the areas of housing, education, child and family needs, employment and training, health and wellness, and reconciliation. Adam has held positions in senior management in First Nations governments and the nonprofit sector. He has a wealth of experience in Indigenous governance, having served on numerous boards and committees in BC and Alberta. He's also served in public office, having been appointed by the BC Minister of Health as a governor to the large, largest health authorities in British Columbia and a South Fraser Health Region. Adam has served in the leadership roles in his community as an elected member of the Bikani First Nation Chief and Council. Adam currently sits on the National Board of the Legacy Hope Foundation in Ottawa and also has been instrumental in assisting with the development of Indigenous training modules with the College of Alberta Registered Nurses Association, the Alberta Teachers Association, and the Alberta School Boards Association. Currently, Adam is the president of the 60 Scoop Indigenous Society of Alberta. Adam is providing leadership in Alberta and nationally working with the governments of Alberta and Canada, paving the way for reconciliation for all 60 Scoop survivors in Canada. Welcome, Adam. Welcome to Indigenous Roots and Hoots. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing okay today. It's been a busy day, and uh, but uh, I'm focused and ready to uh, give some insight uh, in this podcast. So thank you for welcoming me. Maybe we'll just start, uh, you talk a little bit about uh, where you come from. Uh, I guess you're from the Picani First Nation. We had the privilege of uh, visiting Picani uh, uh, maybe almost a year ago um, on a different project that we were working on. Maybe you can just start by talking a bit about where you come from, your family background and that sort of stuff. Okay, well, uh, I am uh, from the Picani First Nation, and that's in uh, southern Alberta. And my community is uh, along Highway 3 in southern Alberta between uh, Pincher Creek and Fort McLeod. So if you've ever been to the Hitchmaston Buffalo Jump, uh, that's uh, uh, designated as a UNESCO heritage site. If you've ever uh, been there, you've been on my community. And if you haven't been there, I encourage you to uh, stop in and, and check it out because you will be completely amazed. But anyways, that's where I'm from. It, uh, the Picani First Nation is part of the Blackfoot Confederacy. And uh, we are made up of uh, four tribes, uh, Kainai, the Blood. Uh, Siksika uh, and uh, Bigani, and then our uh, our friends down uh, just in uh, Browning, Montana, Blackfeet, and those are the four tribes that make up the uh, Bigani First Nation. I, I didn't really grow up in my community because uh, I'm a 60 scoop survivor, and I was a part of uh, you know that whole notion of uh, government policy of uh, going in and removing uh, Indigenous children, forcibly removing Indigenous children from their uh, communities, their families, and placing them in non-Indigenous foster homes and adoptions. So I was a part of that. So I actually grew up in numerous, numerous different uh, non-Indigenous foster homes and children's shelters all over Southern Alberta, right from the time I was an infant until I aged out. So predominantly, that's that's where I grew up. And uh, I came back to my community when I was about 17, just before I aged out. And I went back to my community and uh, I experienced culture shock 
like he could not imagine. And, um, you know, because I was, I saw a lot of things that I had never seen in my life, you know, uh, drinking, you know, drug abuse, there was uh, family violence, the housing conditions were quite deplorable. And uh, as, as a way to be accepted and having to deal with all that trauma that I experienced, you know, as part of the 60s scoop, I uh, started to uh, drink quite heavily. And I drank uh, for about heavily daily uh, for about the 10, 15 years of my life. And I ended up on the streets in Vancouver on East Hastings. Uh, I was homeless, uh, you know, uh, doing drugs and uh, and and being a, a full-blown alcoholic. And uh, I became a father and uh, my two oldest daughters uh, were removed because of my drinking. And uh, they were placed in non-Indigenous foster home in, in the province of BC. And uh, just before they were... Uh, they went permanent. Uh, Child welfare told me that if I didn't do anything about my drinking, that uh, my kids were, were going to be gone and I would never see them. And at the, it was at that point where I really started to uh, see a pattern that was ha happening, a cycle, a vicious cycle, because what, what my two oldest daughters were uh, going through, that's what I went through. So I decided to do something about it. And I went into a treatment center, uh, Brown Lake in, uh, in BC, that's just outside of Vernon, Armstrong. And and uh, I went to a treatment center and uh, ever since 1994, I've been walking uh, a road of wellness. And uh, since that time, you know, I've done a lot of numerous things, uh, you know, to uh, become the person that I am. And uh, I lived in I actually lived in B.C. in Vancouver for uh, 10 years. And uh, and it was in when I was in B.C., that's where I really started to uh, develop my career. You know, the first couple of things that I did in my career was I became an addictions counselor and I was working at the uh, Native Court Workers and Counseling Association. Oh, no, the Native Court Workers Counseling Association of BC on uh, Powell Street, which is uh, about two blocks over from East Hastings. And uh, I worked in the uh, health profession for about a couple of years. And then I went out to uh, Stalo Nation in Chilliwack and I worked with the Stalo people uh, working in the addictions. And uh, but after that, you know, I started to become quite tired of uh, of uh, the the addictions field. So I I did a, a 360 in my career, and I moved into uh, management. And um, I'm very grateful that the uh, Tawasan Indian Band in uh, Tawasan First Nation in Vancouver, which is at the Tawasan Ferry Terminal, you know, just before you get to the Tawasan Ferry Terminal, you hang a left and you're on the Tawasan First Nation. And uh, I, I got a job there as their tribal administrator and I worked there for uh, four years. And uh, it was something that I really, really enjoyed. Uh, but also during that time, you know, I started to delve into uh, governance and um, you know I, I started to uh, get involved as an engaged indigenous community member in the lower mainland you know I, I sat on the uh, advisory board with the uh, indigenous advisory board with the Surrey School District I served on the um, the Fraser Valley Aboriginal Health Council board uh, I, I was on the executive for the Aboriginal Health Association of British Columbia and then uh, I got the appointment from the uh, from the government of BC to uh, sit as a governor to uh, to the South Fraser Health Region. So I served out a four-year term, and there was just lots of other things that I did. But what happened was in 2000 and, uh, 2003, um, I, my career had reached a plateau in BC that I couldn't take it any any anywhere else because I had reached a plateau because it wasn't my home province and my community wasn't there. That I felt that in order to 
escalate and elevate my career that I needed to move home. So I, I, uh, I started to look for employment back in Alberta. And, and I got a job in uh, the Stony Tribal Administration as the administrator for the Wesley First Nation. And I worked there for four years. I was encouraged by some of my community members back at home to uh, throw my name in the hat for uh, elected leadership in my community. So I did. And at the end of the day, you know, uh, uh, when we were counting the ballots and it became the morning because it's an all night affair, uh, at, at when they when they finalized the ballots, I had reached, I had gotten the popular vote. And that to me was very, very emotional because for a 60 scoop survivor who never grew up in in my community to uh, bestow the honor of my nation members to lead them in leadership uh, with the most votes, it was a very humbling experience. So I served my my community in leadership and, uh, you know, Indian politics is it, 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 it's pretty tough. You you got to have thick right, skin, right. Eh? you know. So uh, yeah. So anyways, I, I served leadership and uh, you know in my community, and then uh, after serving out my term, um, I decided to do some other things. And another thing that happened in 2003, when I came back to uh, when I moved back from Vancouver to Calgary, I noticed in the in the Indigenous community in the in Calgary there was no friendship center. But in 1994, before I left, there was a, an a, Aboriginal Friendship Centre. But when I came back, there wasn't. And the reason that there wasn't is because, uh, you know, there was some um, some stuff that had happened where the funding got pulled. So the Friendship Centre rolled up. And when I moved back to uh, Calgary, well, still working in Morley, I decided to do something about it. So I brought together uh, Indigenous community leaders in the city of Calgary. We formed an ad hoc committee. We redeveloped the policies and procedures. We went back to Alberta Corporate Registry and registered as a society. And we started the Friendship Centre again in the province, in the city of Calgary. And I'm so proud of that because now that Friendship Centre is very much thriving in the city of Calgary. And, and I, and I really appreciate that. So after I got out of leadership and uh, because of what I did in the city of Calgary, they brought me up, they brought me up to Edmonton to revitalize the friendship center in the city of Edmonton and uh, to, to bring some life to it because it was on the verge of collapsing itself. So I went up there and I did that and uh, you know, to kind of rebuild the blocks and, uh, and put it together and uh you know and once i did that uh i i uh I, I felt that you know i tried to i wanted to do something else so i i entered the oil and gas sector and i worked in the oil and gas sector uh in uh, in alberta for about four years and um but at the same time the whole thing about you know about the residential school everybody knows about that yes, and, yes. You know, and the residential school was a time in our life when in the 1980s, when the former national chief of the uh, Assembly of First Nations, Phil Fontaine, started to talk about uh, reconciliation for residential school survivors. He talked about the need for an apology for residential school survivors. So that amount. So the federal government, they uh, they uh, put together the Aboriginal Healing Foundation. They pumped in three hundred fifty million dollars residential school survivors were starting to receive their compensation, you know, for, uh, you know, the abuses that they had suffered, you know, and then uh, they put together the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. They appointed three commissioners, you know, and then uh, finally uh, they they tabled the final report of the TRC in, in Ottawa. And through that whole span took about 20 years. 
20 to 25 years for that whole process to evolve. And I sat back and I watched this whole process evolve. And you know what? The one thing that entered through my mind was, you know what? I was really happy for the residential school survivors for for being acknowledged, you know, and I was happy that they were compensated. But myself, I kind of sat back and I thought to myself, not being a residential school survivor, but being part of another era, the 60s scoop, I started to think to myself, well, what about us? What about the the survivors of the 60s scoop? Because we endured a lot of hardship there ourselves. So um, I, I, I felt that something needed to be done. And um, so in uh, June of 2015, um, I was sitting at home, I was watching CBC National News, and then all of a sudden on the CBC National News, I saw the former premier of the province of Manitoba, Greg Selinger, stand up in the Manitoba legislature and issue an official apology to the 60 Scoop survivors in the province of Manitoba. And I watched that apology, very, very emotional. You know, I I, I had a lot of tears in my eyes, and I kind of thought to myself, you know what? If, if Manitoba can do that, then why not Alberta? So I started a letter writing campaign to the premier of the province of Alberta on the need for reconciliation for 60 scoop survivors, the need for an apology. And you know what? I wrote letters every single day for probably about a, a good two years to the to the premier of the province of Alberta talking about reconciliation and uh, my wife at the, uh, was very very supportive and you know what it fell on deaf ears because when you deal with government sometimes you know things don't happen as quickly as you want them to happen but at the same time you know at the same time uh you know I was very persistent and I was very and I didn't relent when the going got tough and I was very passionate and I kept on writing those letters and you know what I did get some responses back from the government of Alberta but it was all lip service thank you Mr. North began for your letter and we're sorry that you that you had to endure this through through the 60 scoop when the government is ready to look at this we'll give you a call basically i saw that as lip service but no action so anyways what i did is uh in march of uh, 2016 i uh i i went to the uh, opposition party in the province of alberta and i went and shared my story and uh the opposition critic for indigenous relations and the leader of the opposition took my story and they told me that they were going to bring it up in the alberta legislature and put it to the premier and the minister and cabinet that you know what, you need to do something about this. So they instructed me to bring a group of survivors to the Alberta legislature in 2017. And we would sit up in the gallery and uh, we would be looking down on on the premier and government and the uh, legislatures. And the Indigenous relations critic of the day stood up and introduced the 60 scoop survivors. And we all cried. It was so emotional because it was the very first time that the government of Alberta acknowledged 60 scoop survivors. And the Indigenous relations critic put it to the Premier that, you know what, Madam Premier, at that time it was Rachel Notley, there's a group of 60 scoop survivors that are up here in the gallery. When, Madam Premier, are you going to apologize to them? When are you going to address reconciliation for 60 scoop in, in Alberta? And the system only reacts when the, when, when the system is feeling pressure. So the government felt the pressure of that day. And when I got home from the Alberta legislature, within 20 minutes when I walked into my house, I got a call from the Minister of Indigenous Relations within 20 minutes. So you can't tell me that uh, you can't move mountains. You know what I mean? 
And we started to engage in a conversation of, uh, you know, uh, reconciliation and apology. And he was very apologetic for not responding to me. And uh, that resulted in a meeting with that ad hoc committee of survivors. We went to the Alberta legislature. We met with the cabinet. We shared our stories. We talked about reconciliation. And we started to develop a plan of uh, what we would need to do to engage as many survivors in the province of Alberta, leading to an official apology. So we developed an engagement model. We went across the province in six uh, sites. We went to uh, Lethbridge, Calgary, Edmonton, Fort McMurray, Peace River, and there was one other, oh, St. Paul. And we had engagement sessions with survivors. And uh, uh, the, uh, the ministers traveled with us. We had sharing circles and we listened to the horrors, to, to, to the atrocities, to the trauma of what 60 scoop survivors had to endure. And we also used it as an opportunity to engage survivors in what a meaningful apology would look like for them. If they had to hear an apology from the government of Alberta, what would you like to see in that apology? At the end of the day, when we finished that engagement, the engagement sessions, we had successfully engaged well over a thousand survivors in Alberta alone. And we rolled up all the data, we put it into, uh, we identified common themes and we started to craft an apology. And that resulted in a very historic day in the province of Alberta, May 28, 2018, uh, where the government of Alberta stood up and issued an official apology to the survivors of the 60s scoop in in, uh, in Alberta. And that ad hoc committee, we uh, we uh, incorporated and we became the 60s scoop Indigenous Society of Alberta. That's where I sit now as the president. So that's that's kind of the whole thing in, in, a, yeah. in a nutshell. That's a big nutshell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you covered actually probably about five of my questions. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, uh, for uh, just for people who are listening and they hear this term "sixty scoop," describe what the sixty scoop was about and, and why it was done to yourself and uh, and how it affected you as a person. Well, you know what the. the uh, as the residential schools were starting to phase out, you know, because the residential schools started to be created by Sir John A. Macdonald, the first prime minister of Canada. So that was in the late 1800s, right? And it spanned over uh, probably a century with right. the residential schools. But when they started to close their doors, what the government of the day did, the government of Canada in 1951, they, they amended the Indian Act to offload the responsibility of Indigenous Child and Family Services to the provinces. So what that did is, uh, and it was a continuation of the assimilation process of taking the Indian out of the child. And so the, uh, the, gov- the, uh, the provinces and the territories were charged with the responsibility of going out and forcibly removing as many Indigenous children in their area and placing them in non-Indigenous foster homes and children's shelters. So that's how that whole process began. So it was an extension of the residential school era, and uh, and it was uh, just as oppressive or maybe even more oppressive. And for myself, you know, uh, I'm uh, I was born in 1964, and I was removed by, from my community by. Uh, child welfare in the province of Alberta as an infant. I was probably maybe about uh, less than one year old, probably 1965. And I come from a very large family. Uh, my family, there's 10 siblings, you know, uh, 10 of us all together, and we were all removed. We were all removed by Alberta's child welfare, and we were all taken 
from our from our mother and and uh, we were placed all in separate homes. We weren't placed to get. We weren't put in the same home, and uh, and basically, so I grew up in uh, numerous non-indigenous foster homes and children's shelters right across southern Alberta in Lethbridge, Raymond, and uh, and children's shelters. And uh, you know what? Some of those homes were not good. You know that they, they that there was a lot of uh, mental abuse. There was physical abuse. Uh, you know, we were used as farm labor. You know, in farming communities, as little kids with expectations to do, uh, you know, chores on the, res- uh, 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 you know, within the farm that the birth kids didn't have to do, and there was a lot of sexual abuse, and and I, I and I'm a, I'm a survivor of sexual abuse as well because uh, in some of those homes it, it was it was really horrific, eh? And so it, how it affected me is, uh, you know, that whole notion of uh, you know stability. You know, uh, having that nurturing, uh, you know, uh, unconditional love for my mother. I never, I never uh, experienced that. You know, loss of culture was a big thing. There was a time in my life where I looked at the color of my skin and I was very ashamed. I was so ashamed of the color of my skin because I was brown, because I was told in my foster homes that I was dirty. And I remember in in uh, one foster home, you know, as a little boy, I think I was probably about five or six years old, being thrown in a tub with a, with a, a soap and water and a brush, and told to clean my clean my skin because I was dirty, you know. So if you can just imagine, you know, the trauma that goes with that, eh? Hey? And it, it was just horrific, eh? And it got worse when I when I came home because, uh, like I said, you know, I already talked about the culture shock and. You know, and it led me down a road that, uh, you know, I'm not very pleased with, but it's it's a it's a journey that uh, has maybe become the person that I am today. It, it, it wasn't a good time. You know, it, it was it was it was very troubling and, and I had a hard time with it. Eh? With all the stuff that's happened to your life and uh, uh, and the work that you do now as a board member of the Legacy Hope Foundation, uh, we do work. Uh, uh, we try to a lot of different work to educate the public Canadians in general about the past about with Aboriginal people and uh, there's this word that keeps popping up and that you know we're we're we're, uh, we're making efforts to to do reconciliation work with the Legacy Hope Foundation so that uh, Canadians can better understand Aboriginal people and the history of Aboriginal people when it comes to reconciliation uh, what are your thoughts about reconciliation and what can be done or what do you think we should do to try and make this country a better better country for everyone? You know what? I, I've been a board member with the Legacy of Hope Foundation probably about, it's been two years now that, that I've been on the national board. And it's it's an experience that, uh, that I'm very grateful for because uh, one of the things that attracted me to come to the Legacy of Hope Foundation and, and uh, serve within, within the board was because what I saw the Legacy of Hope Foundation do was uh, developing educational tools to take out to mainstream Canadians on Turtle Island, uh, whether it be the residential school, the missing and murdered Indigenous women, the 60 scoop, because the thing is, is that mainstream Canadians need to understand the true history of Canada. You know, and we call it Turtle Island because, uh, you know, it, it's something that you can't ignore and it's something that you, you know, that, that you can't sweep under the carpet. And, uh, you know, and when when we can do that, you know, as an opportunity as to educate mainstream 
Canadians on the uh, on the atrocities of of these uh, of these generations. You know, our our hope is that it will uh, it will create more of an open mind with those Indigenous people. I mean, with, with mainstream Canadians, that they'll have a better understanding of the Indigenous people in Canada. And the Legacy Pope Foundation plays a crucial role in that because that's what their mandate is, is to, is to develop tools that provide education to mainstream, uh, mainstream Canadians. And when mainstream Canadians can really grasp and have a better understanding of the true history of Canada, you know, it, it, uh, it, it, you know, maybe they will think differently when they see one of our people that is still suffering or still on the streets in Toronto, Edmonton, Ottawa, Calgary, Vancouver, that are feeling destitute, that are homeless, that are uh, you know suffering with addictions, that are panhandling on the on the streets. They won't look at them with those systemic racist uh, comments and, and thoughts of uh, a drunken Indian bum. You know what I mean? Because you know they're good people. They're very very good people. And the thing is, is that you know what? Chances are, is those individuals are either residential school survivors. They're products of the residential school. They're uh, uh, survivors of the 60s school. The the whole notion is to be able to have more compassion, more compassion for those people and and to uh, try and influence those unhealthy attitudes that fuel racism towards the Indigenous people in Canada. Excellent. Very well said. I think uh, you covered a lot of ground in uh, in a short time. Uh, Maybe that's kind of where your life's been, Adam. I'm very impressed with uh, what you talk about, uh, about your life and uh, how you survived being a part of the 60s scoop and then going back to your community and uh, working for your Pikani Nation on the chief and council. Were you a chief or you were you a councillor? I was on, uh, I was a council. A council, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, even that's, you know, I mean, that's that's a lot of work. Uh, being a, being a council on the reserve is like 24-7, you know, it's like, constantly people calling you. I know I have relatives and I've had a couple of cousins who are chiefs, so I fully understand, you know, the work involved yeah. in living it's on a 20, Yeah, it's a 24-7 job. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No holidays, you don't get no. vacation time, yeah. No. no. I understand that totally. You know, you covered, uh, like I said, you covered a lot of work. Are you? What are you right now? You're, uh, what's your full-time occupation right now? Are you working on the 60 scoop thing full-time or are you? Uh, yeah, 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 pretty well, uh, you know, because uh, it, it's basically a, a full-time job. So if, if, you, if someone had to ask me, what is it that you do now today, Adam, you know, full-time? And I would say, you know, uh, advocacy for our people. And, you know, along with that in the province of Alberta, you know, I've, uh, I've had some other projects going, you know, um, with the Alberta Teachers Association and the uh, Alberta School Boards Association uh, worked on developing, um, you know, uh, a training module on 60 Scoop that is going to be farmed out to all of the uh, teachers in the province of Alberta, you know, that will be responsible for delivering that curriculum. So a lot of work that went into that. Um, with the uh, College of Alberta Nurses Association, um, I worked on developing a, a training module for all of the nurses in the province of Alberta. 
and we're talking about 40, 45,000 nurses, you know, in, in Alberta that are part of this training project. Because you know what, what, when our people go into acute care facilities, you know, the hospitals, the doctors, the nurses, you know, medical centers, who's the first person that we have contact with? It's the nurse, you know, and so there was a need to develop some kind of training module for these practitioners that when we walk in the door, that they have a better understanding of who we are and maybe why we're there, you know, and it's just, it's just not because, uh, you know, uh, some kind of uh, physical ailment, you know, um, you know, so I worked on developing the, uh, that training module for the Alberta College Association. I'm kind of working, uh, you know, with the uh, Department of uh, Fisheries and Oceans, you know, on, on developing, uh, you know, training modules. And then the work that I do with uh, 60 Scoop, is actually a full-time job. You know, it keeps me very, very, very busy, eh? Were there uh, uh, 60 Scoop survivors in the NWT and in Nunavut as well? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, yeah, there was. The, the, the 60 Scoop was uh, an atrocity that happened, uh, you know, with the Métis, the non-status, the Inuit, and the First Nations. So it, it was inclusive of all of the Indigenous groups. And uh, we're talking about probably uh, around the ballpark of about 100,000 that were affected right across uh, right across Canada. Sadly to say, a lot of those survivors uh, could not come to terms with what had happened to them, uh, you know, when they were uh, placed. And we're talking about kids that were not only placed here in Canada, but in the United States and globally, you know, in uh, Great Britain in Germany, you know, in uh, uh, in Australia, New Zealand, Switzerland, eh? And you know what, I can share a story. When I was working in the health and profession in uh, the late 80s in the city of Calgary, we had one uh, indigenous person that came into our office who had just gotten off the plane from, uh, from Germany. And he was indigenous and he was from a First Nation community in Alberta. And when he got off the airplane, he wanted to reconnect with uh, his indigenous community. And, uh, but when he stepped off that plane in the city of Calgary, he could not even speak a word of his own language, let alone English, because it was his very first time back in his home country. And he had a very, very uh, troubling time in trying to reconnect because he could only speak fluent German. And and it was so troubling that he ended up taking his own life on the streets in Calgary. Mm -hmm. So we still have a lot of survivors that are still displaced and still have not made it home to their, uh, you know, to their country and, and their, and their indigenous communities. Recently, you know, uh, in 2017, um, after a lot of work, there was uh, um, the, the government in Canada was subject to uh, civil uh, class action lawsuits because of the the atrocities. And uh, there were some uh, lead plaintiffs out of the province of Ontario. They reached an agreement with the federal government on a national compensation package for 60 scoop survivors. And what we're starting to see now as we speak is in Canada, 60 scoop survivors are beginning to receive their uh, their their federal compensation for what had happened to them, much like the residential school survivors. So we've come a long ways, but there's still uh, you know a, a lot more that needs to be done. With the survivors, you talk about 60 scoop survivors that were taken away to foreign countries. You mentioned that they're still out there. Is there any uh, have you have you made efforts to try and contact these people? And are there records of uh, that exist that 
how you can contact these people? You know what? Uh, each of the provinces and territories, you know, with their child welfare departments um, within governments, they they do have uh, records, you know, of uh, of each child that was uh, forcibly removed. And in Ottawa, the with the Federal Department of Indian Northern Affairs Canada, they do have records of those that were adopted, because those that were adopted, they their their Indian status ceased once they became adopted, because what had happened is that. When an Indigenous child came into care and they were put up for adoption, when they became adopted, they assumed the identity of that Indigenous, of that non-Native home, and they assumed their last name. And in their live birth records, their birth parents' names were stripped from there, taken off, and the adopted parents' names were inserted in there on their live birth certificates. So that is, to me, is 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 a loss of identity that you know that can never be repaired so when these survivors come home with a birth certificate like that you know they have a hard time trying to uh reestablish themselves within their indigenous community that's kind of like a, a form of genocide right uh, it is wiping yeah out, wiping out a person's identity yeah who he is and you know where he originates from what I'm not afraid to call it. I'm not afraid to call it for what it is, you know, and, and just another quick thing I want to share with you. When the 60s scoop was really uh, uh, prevalent uh, in Canada, uh, when it really snowballed in the 1960s, what had happened in the province of Saskatchewan is the Saskatchewan government had an influx of uh, Indigenous children in their care but they didn't have enough resources to be able to place these Indigenous children. So the government of the day in the 1960s and the Saskatchewan government, they pumped in resources to develop the AIM program. And it's not the American Indian Movement, it's the Adopt Indian Métis program. And what they did is they they took snapshots of these Indigenous children uh, and they call them, uh, and we call it like uh, child welfare monk shots. And they took pictures of them and they wrote a little description of this child and they put it in catalogs, in, in, in a catalog, and they sent out those catalogs to predominantly uh, well-to-do, non-Indigenous, uh, well-to-do communities in Saskatchewan. So when you picked it up in the mail, at your mailbox, you could flip through it like a Sears catalog or Canadian Tire catalog and, oh, okay, well, I like that one. Nah, I don't like that one. You know. So you know what? Is that not borderline human trafficking of Indigenous kids. And through that AIM program, there was a merit system that was developed in the province of Saskatchewan, where the Saskatchewan government recognized and gave merit to those uh, Indigenous uh, ch- uh, child welfare workers, non-Indigenous child welfare workers, with a merit of salesman of the year for the removal of the most Indigenous children and the placements of most Indigenous children. And those child, those non-Indigenous child welfare workers were awarded a merit and it was called Salesman of the Year, you know, and that was through the AIM program. And, in, and Saskatchewan was the only province that had that AIM program. So, you know, it, it, it is cultural genocide. Call it for what it is. Such an incredible, incredible story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to thank you, uh, Adam, for your time. Uh, I, I, got a, I got a root and hoot. Okay, there's. I was just going to get to that. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, the last the last part of our the roots and hoots is the hoots part, and uh, it's uh, you know Aboriginal people have so much humor, and I guess it's kind of a survival thing, uh, a resiliency thing that we have built into us. 
Roots and Hoots, uh, part, part of it is uh, we're trying to inject some humor into our serious discussions. So, uh, so Adam, uh, do, you have, uh, do you have a hoot for us or a joke or a story? Yeah, I do, actually. And you know what? It's actually a true story, but at the end of the day, it's actually very funny. Okay. okay. But you know what? One of the, one of the projects that the uh, 60 Scoop Indigenous Society of Alberta has been doing is, you know, we we we've been supporting our survivors all across Alberta probably for the last uh, 4 or 5 years in developing and delivering uh you know, certain programs and services and advocating for them. But one of the projects that we're doing is we're uh because we're in COVID-19, right? A global pandemic. You know, uh, one of the projects that we're doing is we are able to access funding from the government of Canada to uh, for COVID-19 uh, relief funding. And what it is, is that we are able to uh, deliver uh, 60 scoop COVID-19 care packages to 60 scoop survivors all across Alberta. So we've been traveling the province, Calgary, Lethbridge, Edmonton, Win- uh, uh, Fort McMurray, Grand Prairie, Rocky Mountain House, Cardston, Cochrane, delivering uh, COVID-19 care packages for 60 scoop survivors. But in the process of getting all that ready, there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes. And some of the work that we need to do is we need to go out and actually purchase these items that go into the COVID-19 care packages. And we have to sort them out and we have to package them up and get them ready for delivery so we can go on the road. And uh, probably about uh, a month ago, we were doing that in the city of Edmonton. And we set up a curbside because of COVID-19 where 60 scoop survivors could come and drive through the parking lot and we would give them their COVID-19 care package. They would sign for it. And what had happened in that particular time is one of my board members uh, was uh, had a trolley and he was uh, he was uh, he had it loaded with supplies you know, care packages that we were taken down to the parking lot. And we're and our office is on the third floor of the Métis Settlements General Council building. So we we're all going up and down, up and down the elevator, you know, uh, making sure that we had enough supplies, you know, down at the uh, parking lot. Eh? And uh, I had my son there. Uh, my son was helping out and he's 25 years old and he's handicapped. He's Down syndrome. And I also had my granddaughter there and she's uh, five, six years old. And what had happened is that we're we're going up and down the elevator and there's two elevators. And one of my board members went into the elevator with my granddaughter, who's six years old, and my uh, Down syndrome son, son. And you know what? And they had a trolley. They they had a trolley of supplies and they got stuck in the elevator. They got stuck in the elevator. And you know what? At that moment, it was very scary because, you know, uh, they were they they were stuck in that elevator for, for about over an hour. But when I think back at it, when I think back at it now, you know, I, I find it it's it's quite comical. It's quite it's quite you know, going through that whole thing, you know, I, 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 can't, I laugh at it today because it's just part of what had happened in being able to do what we need to do. You know, having my, one of my board members, my handicapped son with Down syndrome and my six-year-old granddaughter stuck in, in an elevator with nowhere to go. And if you've ever been stuck in an elevator, it's scary. It's scary. 
Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? And, oh, yeah. geez. Uh, yeah. I don't wish that upon anybody. But, uh, you know, but when I think back about it now, you know, my, my uh, granddaughter laughs about it. My board member laughs about it. And it's one of those things that uh, has happened in our journey that we can kind of look back and laugh at now. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Crazy. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time, Adam. You got an incredible story and uh, such a, a sad situation, what you went through and uh, all the survivors and I wish you well and in your job and what you do. And uh, thank you for taking the time to do this with us. Okay, thank you and very much appreciated. Have a good day. You too. Okay. Roots and Hoots is produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. For more podcasts like this, please visit our website at legacyofhope.ca.